Please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 33. This is the 59th sermon in a series we've been going through in Mark, and the third to the last. Portion of scripture this morning begins at verse 33 of Mark 15 and goes to verse 39. Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God is we prepare to hear your word. We do well to remember the words of the Apostle Paul that says that the treasure of your word has been committed to earthen vessels, vessels of weakness, impotent vessels, sinful, broken, undeserving vessels so that any glory, any majesty, any power which emerges will obviously be seen to be from God and not from ourselves. And while that's true of all of us as Christians, Lord, that your power is perfected in weakness, it is especially true of the preacher. So I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of each one of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight you who are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any death is a serious matter. Nothing in the whole history of a person, nothing in your whole life, is as important as this moment. Such that how you spend your last days, your last hours, your last minutes and even your last words says as much about you as anything in your whole life could say. True as this is, there was never a death as important, as significant as the death we see before us this morning, the death of Jesus. In the instant that our Lord drew his last breath, the work of atonement was accomplished The ransom for sinners was finally paid. 
the kingdom of heaven and its gates were thrown open wide to all of God's lost sheep. Every solid joy, every pleasure, every meaningful purpose in life can be connected to the death of Jesus in our passage this morning. So as we come to Mark's description of the death of Jesus, I want to first walk through this this passage verse by verse with you so that you understand what's happening. There's, there's the details here are significant and it's packed. Second, I want to ask, as I have been in recent weeks, why do you think this story is in the Bible? Why is this here? Why did Mark include it in his gospel? And I want to end with some personal challenges for each of you to consider. So first of all, what is this story? Let's walk through it as it's been read verse by verse. Well, if you look at the whole passage, 33 to 39, you can roughly divide it into two parts. The final moments and events leading up to the moment where Jesus breathes his last in verse 37. And then there's two things that in this morning's portion of scripture that Mark describes as happening after Jesus breathed his last. In verse 33, we are told that the sixth hour had come and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later in the service, but in the Jewish way of counting time, the sixth hour was about noon, and the ninth hour was about 3 p.m. What is this darkness that is described? Well, it's some sort of cosmic or celestial event. I don't believe merely natural. I believe it was a supernatural event. I don't believe it was over the entire world. I think it was some sort of supernatural shadow that God caused to fall at least over the land of Judea at that time. It could signify an echo of the plague of darkness going back to the book of Exodus when God was sending plagues upon the people of Egypt. God's curse in that plague of darkness rested on the land of Egypt. It could also point to the Old Testament, to one more Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled in the book of Amos, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. I personally like the interpretation of the, this, this darkness overshadowing the land, that nature herself is covering her face in grief and shame, that the Son of God, the creator of nature, is coming to his final minutes of life. Then we come to verse 34 of the text, and in the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, this strange language you see printed in your Bibles that Mark has to interpret for you is actually the Aramaic language, which probably was the actual language that Jesus spoke and was the commonplace language for Hebrews, for Jews, in Judea at this time. The, the language of Hebrew was sort of like a more of a religious language at this point in the history of the Jewish people. It would be used in holy days and festivals and, and certain extra-religious households might use Hebrew. Every Jewish child would know Hebrew, but Aramaic was more commonly spoken. And so Jesus, if I may put it this way, his mother tongue utters to God in Aramaic these words, which Mark then translates as he's writing into Greek, which you now have in English. Where these words come from is Psalm 22. It's describing a situation in King David's life 
where he is utterly abandoned. But here, the psalm is being used, I think, to its fullest and best purpose to describe not the abandonment and forsakenness of a human king, King David, who was himself a sinner, but to describe the abandonment and forsakenness, the banishment of the Messiah of God by God himself. This shows us God's hatred of sin. Then we have in verses 35 and 36 the final indignity of Christ. All through Mark's gospel, we've been seeing how Jesus has been misunderstood again and again and again, and the people think this and the people think that. Who is he? What has he come to do? And the mockery here, I think, continues that we saw in the last couple of weeks. Some of the bystanders hearing what Jesus said, they probably heard Aloy, which is Aramaic for God, and thought he said Ali, which is more like Elijah. So they heard him say this and said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come. They're still thinking that he's going to prove his bona fides by coming down from the cross rather than as he plans and will do to prove his bona fides by staying on the cross and drinking the cup of God's wrath to its very drop, last drop. Verse 37 is the actual death of Christ. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. There's a world of meaning in this short sentence. When someone is hanging on the cross, their lungs are collapsed. People don't utter loud cries from the cross. In fact, you could translate this, this, this statement here, a loud cry, a little more vividly and say, Jesus shouted. He shouts from the cross. Luke has his very last words as being, it is finished. Mark doesn't include that. Mark tells us that he shouts. What's the meaning of this? I think it both describes the intense anguish that he was going through, but more than that, I think it points forward to an event that we haven't yet covered. Our last sermon will be the resurrection of Christ it points forward to his victory. A crucified man doesn't shout from the cross. This loud cry could be understood as a triumph, a triumph shout. It's the nonverbal utterance version of it is finished. He's shouting in triumph, saying, It is finished. I am done. I have won. He shouts from the cross. So those are the events that lead up to his death. And then our text tells us two things that happened after he died. Can you see what those are? First, the first thing that happens that Mark records, the very first thing is this. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the one who tears the curtain is not a human person who would start from the bottom and start tearing upward but it's someone who comes from above. This is a divine rending, a sovereign ripping. This suggests that as tearing in the ancient world was an indication of judgment and rejection, tearing something means it's no longer useful, it's to be discarded. 
just like you might crumple up a piece of paper and toss it in the trash can. God crumples up the, the curtain of the temple itself, saying, this place is no longer the place where you will meet with God. Forevermore, the temple is closed. This earthly temple is closed. I also think the tearing of the curtain suggests something of the new mission of God to the world. You see, if men were to tear the, tear the curtain, we wouldn't have done that because we like our religious traditions. We'd have torn it a little bit. Yeah, we need a couple changes around here. But God tears the temple from the top to the bottom. That inner veil which clothed, which hid, which restrained, which masked the Shekinah glory of God, his, his visible, glorious presence on earth was hidden, was cloaked behind this temple. And in rending this temple, God is saying, my mission is beginning. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, Samaria, yes, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, Rome, and even New Jersey. That's the real miracle. When the curtain was torn, the glory of God is symbolically released into the world. That's amazing. It's beautiful details here, isn't it? Just walking through. You see what you can glean from the scriptures as you carefully move through them verse by verse. I want to encourage you to slow down in the reading of your Bible. Look at how much we, we gained from that, that brief but careful study of God's Word. We could end the sermon here. I'm, I'm not going to, but we could. We need to move on then to ask, why is this story in the Bible? And I don't mean to be disrespectful. Why is the death of Jesus in the Gospel? It seems like an obvious question. But part of my job as a preacher is to state the obvious to people who know the obvious so that you can live the obvious. The death of Jesus. Why is it in the Bible? Much of the Christian faith is connected with this remarkable event. We're asking specifically, why did Mark record this event? Mark is the translator He's the interpreter, the partner, and I think the expounder of Peter's epigrammatic gospel. Peter had delivered to Mark a, a number of anecdotal, tight, compact stories of Jesus, the logia of Jesus, the things that Peter thought were important to know about the life of Jesus, and Mark recorded them in Greek by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he put the death of Jesus as the climax of this book. As Peter tells the story of Jesus to Mark, Peter says, make sure the climax of the story is in the, in the dying of Jesus on the cross. Why did he do that? Here are a world in this question. Here are three suggestions of why this is here. I think, firstly, Mark wants us to realize that the death of Jesus is history. 
It happened in history. It took place. It is an actual, factual, 100% certain historical event. Jesus actually died on a cross in Jerusalem somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D. Some skeptics say that Jesus didn't really die. For example, Muslims and other heretics. But you need to know, as Christians, Jesus really died. He really and truly died. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, it happened in space and time. The way I want to highlight this in this first point is that the exact time of Jesus' crucifixion, I want to look at that exact time, the exact clock time that Jesus died. And I've asked our, um, our AV team to prepare a slide for this purpose. I mentioned earlier the Jewish manner of keeping time in the first century was different. And this slide kindly shows you that they divide the daylight hours into four sections, the, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, the twelfth hour, and the third hour. So any time between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. could qualify as the sixth hour. And likewise, any time between 9 and noon could qualify as the ninth hour. I'm sorry, as the, as the sixth hour. Or third, sixth, ninth, and twelfth. So the third hour covers the time between 9 and noon. The sixth hour covers the time between noon and 3, and so forth. Now, all the, all the Gospels agree about the time that Jesus died. He died at the ninth hour, 3 o'clock. All four Gospels are agreed in this. These are eyewitness accounts, and they all agree. Three of the Gospels record the sun being darkened, and that's the next slide. We've talked about that a little bit. But as it comes to the time of his crucifixion, the Gospels appear to differ or potentially contradict one another. First of all, Matthew doesn't mention the time. Mark says in 1525, which was last Sunday's message, it was the third hour when they crucified him. So that could be any time from 9 o'clock to noon. Luke and John both say that it was about the sixth hour that Jesus was crucified. This is Luke 23, verse 44, and John 19, 14. Now, my point of this, my point here is to say that the death of Jesus is historical. The question that I'm suggesting, or the, the potential problem is, if Mark says it happened at nine, and Luke and John say it happened at noon, then we have a, a possible difference now, a skeptic and others will chalk this difference up to the fact that, well, you know, the Gospels, they're sort of... It's the idea that counts. You get the gist? I mean, he died. If you struggle with the observation that these eyewitness accounts don't agree on the time of this crucifixion, a little bit further study will help show you 
that in fact they do agree. The last slide here is helpful. This slide shows that you can trust the Bible in its factual details. The gospel accounts, the eyewitness accounts of the gospel, do not contradict one another. The third hour may well have been any time up to, say, 11.30 in the morning. And then Luke and John say that the sky was darkened and he was uh, crucified around, around the sixth hour. And they're specific in adding that, that qualifier. So it could be, because we're talking about sundials now, we're not talking about like Timex and such, it could be that it was 11.30 in the morning for Mark, Luke, and John, all three, simply described, as eyewitness accounts do, the same event, accurate in the details, but with a different perspective. And the differences, the different details, though they may not agree, they will not contradict one another. We need to allow the Gospels to speak to us as history. This is very important. I think that's why the death of Christ is in here. Thank you. That's all we need for those slides. My next point is, why is this passage in the Bible? Not only does Mark's description of Jesus' death prove that it is a historical event, that it took place in history. I believe Mark wants you to know that the death of Jesus interprets history. It explains history. We can see this in a number of ways, just merely looking at the human history. Death after death after death after death. How do you explain death? And all of its cousins, aunts and uncles, all the, the, the many ways that the tentacles, the dark, desperate, horrifying tentacles of death have penetrated our, our lives, let alone our graves. The history of the human race is explained, is interpreted by Jesus' death on the cross. The example in our passage that, that proves this point in a symbolic way is the Roman centurion who stands opposite the cross. He's literally looking at Christ. And he, of all the characters in the gospel, says the truest human words of Jesus in 16 chapters. Truly, this was the Son of God. The last person you would expect in human history to confess Jesus Christ as the Son of God is this Roman, and he does so. Seeing him die, now I understand, we might, we might say, and I know that didn't go through his mind in so many words, but I'm explaining to you why Mark put this here, because Mark's readers would have understood it, and we are in the same position. We're on the other side of the cross. We're reading this book. What are we to read here? Jesus' death on the cross explains your struggle with death. I also think it explains death in the natural world, this occluding, this veiling, shrouding of, of the sun in whatever manner it took place. I believe it was a supernatural event. I'm not sure how it took place. Nature itself is receding in humility, in grief perhaps. Nature, one commentator said, nature is bowing its head in reverent sorrow as the Son of God 
bears the wrath of God on the cross. You see, redemption and creation are deeply connected. The death of Christ explains creation history is what I'm telling you. Adam was told that thorns and thistles and death would mark his every effort in life. Why is my life so hard? Why, why can't I get what I want? Why can't I succeed at what I'm trying to do? Why at every turn am I opposed by, by heaven itself, by the weather, by the ground, by my mind? Why doesn't my mind work the way it should? The death of Christ explains natural history, and it also finally explains the history of God's chosen people. We see this in our text when that, that temple is mentioned. It's not an accident that Mark inserts the destruction of the temple at, simultaneous with the destruction of the Son of God. All of religious history is climaxing in the death of Christ. All of man's efforts to please God by his own works crumble at the death of Christ. And you are to read in the death of Christ, your religion is worthless when it comes to a holy God. You cannot mount yourself high enough on the ladder to please the Almighty. He has to send his son to die. I'm emphasizing this because all three of these histories, human history and natural history and religious history, I think is the trifecta, it's the triple play that proves that there is no understanding of history apart from the death of Christ. And I'm speaking especially to you who are students. There is a practice in academia and in the university when we divide time in deference to our non-Christian friends and fellow academics, not in terms of Anno Domini, A.D., the year of our Lord, and B.C., before Christ, but C.E., the common era, and B.C.E., before the common era. And if you're a scholar or a student writing a paper, you may choose in polite respect to other religious perspectives to, to, to accommodate your writing in this sort of terminology. It's not base apostasy to write a paper using CE and BCE. I don't do it. You might do it. You might have reasons to do it. You might need to do it. But you may not think in terms of BCE and CE. You may not study history as a Christian and not understand that all of human history is rushing to a climax at the expiration of the last breath of the Son of God on the cross. And then all of history flows out of that great moment as he three days later rises from the dead. Some of you might be thinking it's going a little too far, isn't it, preacher, to audaciously claim that all of human history is explained by one man, one Jewish carpenter dying on the cross. It is bold from a certain perspective, I admit and even bigoted, potentially. How dismissive to dismiss all the history of Europe, all the history of Africa, of Asia, of America, 
all of ancient prehistoric history. But if God is real, don't you think it's equally bold to say that there is no thread that holds time and the things of time together? Don't you think it's bold to, to claim that history, as is, is often pointed out, is not his story? Isn't that even more bold? To claim that the natural world proceeds not according to a divine purpose, but in foolish denial of everything that our conscience tells us, simply a random, chaotic, unpredictable arrangement that has resulted in this amazing place and these amazing people, Christians and non-Christians alike, the whole panoply, the spectrum of races and ethnicities and views and values and cultural traditions is the work of an almighty, creative, and powerful God. Finally, the death of Jesus is history. The death of Jesus explains history. I think thirdly, Mark includes the death of Jesus in his story because it explains the gospel. Now, it's going to take the rest of the New Testament to explain and develop this more fully, but when Peter and Paul and John do start explaining the theology of the death of Jesus, they're going to do it based on what we have here in this passage. But we don't have to go to Paul to get a strong gospel illustration. We have it right in the text. I've mentioned it already. Did you see the gospel in our passage? The gospel, the good news, that God loves sinners. Do you see it? Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Me, I am your son. I've never sinned even once. I've never stepped out of the path. I've always done what you've asked. I've always refused what is evil. I've always embraced what is good. I've always loved. I've always prayed. I've always listened. I've never argued. And when I have, I've done it in a respectful and reverential way. The gospel in our text is the cry of Jesus, of his abandonment on the cross. The text says, as his last breath, so he shouts from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Being forsaken means you're abandoned by someone, you're banished, you're excluded, punished in some way, kicked out. Being forsaken of God, on the other hand, is the ultimate banishment, the ultimate exclusion, the ultimate punishment. What you need to see here is that Jesus was banished or forsaken of God. What's crazy is he did nothing to deserve this banishment. He was forsaken of God for someone else then. That's the only explanation. And Mark's whole story is driving you to this inescapable conclusion. He suffered for others, not himself. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He surrenders his life for those who should be giving their lives. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' forsakenness, not yours. Jesus' abandonment, not yours. Jesus' banishment, not yours. His death explains the gospel because it shows you what your sins deserve and mine. Utter, full, final rejection by God forever in eternal 
punishment of hell. The bad news, but it's the good news. As Jesus was forsaken, all your sins had been put away once and for all, forever. As I conclude this morning's sermon, I want to end, as I said in the beginning, to give you something for personal change. I think too often we read the Bible and we leave unaffected. What are you teaching me, God? What is he teaching you? How does he want you to respond? Are you here with a so-called spiritual rain slicker? Is this message running off your back? Take it off, get wet, get soaked in this, in this word. And don't leave the same. Here's two, two ways I want to challenge you this morning. First, you need to know the biblical gospel. Here I'm building off of J.I. Packer's famous essay in a remarkable book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. This is the kind of book where all you need to read is the introduction. It's good news, isn't it? Uh, hardcore Puritans will shoot me at this point. Just read Packer's introduction. Packer tells us that the biblical gospel is first and foremost truly honest. And we see honesty in this, in this passage. Some versions of the gospel popular in some churches not far from here and certainly those that are popular in media and get lots of spotlight and attention promise salvation to those who have faith and believe. Not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is different because it shows the death of Christ to be so powerful that it accomplishes the very thing. His death is your salvation. So the biblical gospel is honest because it lays bare the wickedness of our sin, but it's powerful because it accomplishes the very thing for which Christ dies. The cross is not impotent. It is powerful to save. It really and truly saves the death of Christ in the biblical gospel highlights the power of God because your salvation flows to you, not from your faith, but from the cross. Now your faith is that which lays hold of the powerful gospel. That too flows from the cross. It is a gift of God, not of works, Paul says, so that no one may boast. A weak and compromised gospel says that he died that I might believe. A sovereign and mighty gospel says... I believe because he died. So Packer's biblical gospel is honest. It lays bare the naked truth of our sin. It's powerful. And it's also, thirdly, hopeful. If Jesus' death is truly the forsakenness of God that you deserve, not some of it, but all of it, not potentially, but actually, then you can have hope. The only truly solid anchor of hope for your soul in a confused and broken world is the biblical gospel which centers on the death of Jesus. Mental health, personal sin, family trouble, marriage crises. You can have hope because Jesus died for your sins. 
He's not just potentially offering you something. He's radically, fully, personally to the bone, committing to everything necessary for your blessing and for your favor. Last night, my family and I saw in the sky, maybe some of you saw this, a perfect rainbow. Everyone's taking pictures of it in Glassboro. I was reminded that the rainbow is the result of light passing through water in the clouds. I'm a science teacher. I know how these things work. It was appropriated sovereignly by God in the days of Noah as a visible promise that he would never again destroy the earth by the waters of the flood. It was a singular indicator of the hope that arises from God's judgment. The rainbow, God told Noah, was a promise that he would save. By stipulating this natural phenomenon in this way, God created a permanent symbol in the sky which would remind all of Adam's sons and daughters that in his wrath there is hope. In judgment, he remembers mercy. That's the cross. As the hymn writer puts it, there is a green hill far away without the city wall where the dear Lord was crucified who died to save us all. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. So the first challenge is that you need to know and remember the biblical gospel. My second challenge is that I want to leave you with is that you need to be putting sin to death. Since sin put Christ to death, and not just sin in general, but your sin, you must be putting sin to death in your life. Another way to put this, if you don't know what I mean by putting sin to death, think of it this way. You need to take sin seriously, as seriously as God did. I made a similar point last week, and I want to challenge you again. Take your sin seriously. In light of this morning's passage, you must be putting your sin to death. The old preachers would call it mortification, to mortify your sin. And I want you to balance two equally important truths as we think about putting sin to death. First, while your sins have been fully pardoned, paid for, and forgiven by Jesus' death on the cross, your pollution, your ongoing struggle with sin still remains. And this requires an intense spiritual struggle. Takes, as my mother would say, all your might and main, every last drop of energy. You have work to do. You have to take your sin seriously. But on the other hand, and I said these are balancing truths, you can't do this except by a supernatural work of God. Taking sin seriously doesn't mean you're, you're just cleaning up your life to put on a good show for other people. It doesn't mean suppressing your desires or putting them under wraps. It doesn't mean trying to fix yourself up. It doesn't mean making another resolution. Voss puts it this way, the root from which your sins thrive must be cut from the very depths. This is radical work that can only happen by a radical work of God. You can't take your sin seriously on your own. It's not like God loves you so much that he started you out on the Christian life and then left you by the side of the road. 
No, God is the beginning of your Christian life. God is the middle and the end of your Christian life. The cross and the death of Jesus starts you on the Christian way, and the death of Jesus sustains you every single difficult step along the way. So as you take your sin seriously, you will always be going back to an awareness of your impotence, your awareness of your weakness. As a preacher, I have nothing to offer you. If only you knew. Thank God you don't. The biblical gospel which we have been discussing is not only the start to the Christian life, but it's the engine of the Christian life. Yes, putting to death your sin is a work you must do, but it can only be done by the power of the cross that is before us in in Mark this morning. The cross that saves you is the cross that sanctifies you. It's the cross that will glorify you. You have begun your life with God by understanding the power of his death on the cross. As you take sin seriously, the very struggle itself shows you all the more how much you need the power of the cross. We are not a congregation of people who take their sin seriously. We're not a mostly semi-polished group of upstanding Christian people. We are ugly, busted up sinners saved by grace. And the power of the cross is what's made that eminently known to us. We've given up the illusions. We've given up the myth. We've given up trying in some ways to impress. And we're clinging for dear life to the old rugged cross. Because God doesn't just want part of us to be renewed. He doesn't want some of your heart. He's after all of you, body and soul. Every thought he wants for himself. A holistic renewal, deep, not partial, but total. And this total renewal, of course, points beyond the death of Christ to his life, to his resurrection. But his resurrection is meaningless unless Jesus dies. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your holy word. Thank you for this timely word. I certainly need it. As do each and every true Christian who's hearing or watching this morning. We are beggars of sovereign grace. Boasting in nothing but the cross of Christ. And our most serious look at sin leads us to our deepest embrace of the gospel of grace on the cross. So thank you for Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you will have encouraged your people this morning to walk more faithfully with you. And the one who's outside looking in through the window, Lord, I pray they would hear your invitation to come have a seat at the table. That one sinner for the first time would pray to receive Christ and his cross and his death. Not just the interpretation of history, but the purpose of my life. Help that sinner now in Jesus' name. listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.
mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.